0: the new way we work from Fast Company Magazine, where we take listeners on a journey through the changing landscape of our work lives and explain exactly what we need to build the future we want. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor Kathleen Davis. Work has changed a lot in the last few years, from the dramatic shift to remote work, to the struggle over return to office, from the great resignation and quiet quitting, to mass layoffs at tech and media companies, from the rise in union organizing to the rise in AI in workplaces. So what does 2024 hold for companies, leaders, and employees? Today's episode is a recording of a recent LinkedIn audio conversation I had with Fast Company staff editor AJ Hess, where we broke down expert advice and predictions for what the rest of the year holds. Take a listen. Let's get to it and let's start with the big picture. So AJ, you're going to talk about what's going on kind of in the labor market and the the kind of big trends there.
1: Yeah. I mean, what's going on in the labor market right now is is that things are may seem dire sometimes when we see high-profile layoffs, but things are actually going pretty well overall. Um, the labor market ended 2023 on a relatively quiet note. Um, the most recent job openings and labor turnover report suggested that the number of open jobs, the number of people quitting their jobs, um, fell slightly in November. And the final jobs report of 2023 revealed that employers added over 200,000 jobs um, in December, and that unemployment held firm at 3.7%. All in all, those figures are pretty strong. Um, The labor market has been pretty solid, but when we ask people about how optimistic they feel about the labor market, 47% say they are less optimistic about the job market now than they were a year ago. And, you know, at at first, this kind of surprised me because I said, you know, unemployment's 3.7 percent. Why would people feel so kind of pessimistic? Um, And then when I read through the comments, uh, it it seemed to me that, you know, how people felt very well may be tied to how their political beliefs. The unemployment rate in particular uh, is low and has remained low throughout Biden's term. And many of the commenters we saw said that the job market was either strong or in trouble, depending on their political beliefs. For instance, we had one commenter kind of cite this false claim that, you know, the labor market is doing, you know, super well for black workers and it's doing horribly for white workers. And that's just not the case. Unfortunately, you know, the unemployment rate is still significantly higher for black workers. And among people who said they felt really great about the economy, they said, hey, I love Biden. He's doing a great job. So um, we can look at the numbers to tell you how the economy is doing. But my suspicion is that how people feel about the economy has a fair bit to do with their politics.
0: Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And it's also it's also like your personal experience. Right. I, f- I think one commenter said something about he got laid off and how long it took him to get a job. And I remember in the 2009 recession and there following. I was freelancing for a long time. It took me a long time to find another steady job. And I remember reading all of the reports of like, oh, the economy is rebounding, like jobless claims. And I'm like, but I don't personally feel it, you know? And so I think a lot of people are like, well, personally, I feel this way. So this is the way the entire economy must be going. Completely, And, you
1: know, that can, both of those things can absolutely be true, right? You can have your personal experiences. Um, There's definitely people who are still struggling with their wages to keep up with inflation. There have definitely been some high profile layoffs, specifically in the tech industry, um, but we look at the labor market from a wider perspective. Things are pretty solid at the minute.
0: It's good to to have that reminder. I think because you can you can get in your one in your echo chamber and two kind of uh, just in your own personal experience. Okay, so now I'm going to talk about the changes within the workplace itself. What we can expect in 2024. So one unlikely, and this was kind of you know hinted at at the feeling of of who's benefiting in the job market and who's not. One unlikely. A likely unfortunate trend for 2024 will be the continued decrease in investment in DEI programs. After the large investments in 2020, companies were already starting to kind of quietly scale back in 2022 and 2023 either by eliminating or not filling vacant diversity roles or ending kind of programs completely. And part of this is the persistent but very misguided belief that DEI programs are extraneous to the bottom line. It's really frustrating that that kind of keeps coming up. We've been covering that for years. Diversity is crucial for the success of companies. The other part of it, I think, comes from the pressure that some local governments are giving companies, private companies, following the repeal of affirmative action last year. And I spoke to LaFawn Davis from Indeed on the podcast last year, and she pointed out a lot that there, you know a lot of companies are, are being sued, are getting these kind of lawsuits and are saying, okay, okay, we'll back off. You know, we won't use the word diversity. We'll back off of these things. These lawsuits are are a distraction. And, you know, smart companies will see that. Smart companies will continue to invest in DE&I. And there are a few things that smart companies that see the value in DE&I can do. We'll talk more about hiring later, but skill-based hiring is a big one of them. Also, maintaining remote work policies, which is another thing that's huge, huge, huge we'll get into later. And obviously not cutting back or eliminating diversity programs, which are not only good retention tools, but are also good recruiting tools. That's kind of the trend there. This is kind of disappointing. We asked people what they think the most important workplace issue is of 2024, and prioritizing DEI goals came in basically the lowest at 8%. Ethical integration of AI was kind of medium at 35, but the the winner was remote versus hybrid versus full return to office at 53%. That is still, 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 still people's kind of number one issue um, that they're debating over. It's the number one thing we're seeing clashes between management and employees. And some reader comments that were really interesting that did kind of speak to it's not just one, one thing. Katie Metcalf said, creating and fostering a healthy culture. I think that really strongly speaks to DEI." and Matthew Birkenbein, sorry if I mispronounced that, said the same workplace issues as every year, valuing employees, compensating them fairly, and not undervaluing anybody. I think you're right. I think that's always important. So yeah, now let's talk about the world of benefits. So if you, you know, another kind of big workplace trend for this year. Here are some things that benefits expert Angela Sura said that we will see this year. Benefits for part-time workers will hopefully be a big one. More people are working part-time and offering benefits to these employees is crucial for companies for both retention and uh, recruitment. Angela points out that industries like hospitality and retail heavily rely on part-time workers and can see big results by lowering the eligibility threshold to allow more employees to qualify for benefits. The Affordable Care Act allows you to like set minimum weekly hours at 30 to receive full time status. But employees can lower that threshold as they see fit. And she offers some kind of other examples of how to do that in her article, which we will link to. Another benefits trend that we'll hopefully see more of in 2024 is expanding the eligibility for benefits start on the date of hire. So this is something that we covered last year uh, the trend of starting benefits like paid parental leave from the date of hire rather than a year plus in, which had been the standard for decades. And I can we're going to share the link to that article too. But I think a lot of companies, you know, kind of the standard was you have to wait a certain amount of months for your health insurance to kick in. Parental leave was usually you had to work there for a year. I think hopefully employers are seeing these are not things that you can plan for necessarily. Of when oh I'm not going to get sick for the first three months I took this job. I mean these the you know we live unfortunately. Fortunately, where benefits are tied to our jobs, but making benefits a bit more humane is hopefully a trend we'll, we'll continue to see more of. And the final piece of the workplace aspect that I'll mention for 2024, and this is something we saw in a lot of those comments, um, and really something that's tied to that return to office kind of battle too, and DE&I, is employee engagement and satisfaction. It's been taking a huge hit in the last few years, and it's finally starting to get more attention. And while some companies have tried to address things like burnout and mental health with what is called wellness washing, employees, and especially Gen Z, are quicker to call it out and demand real policy changes, and remote work is is a big one of those. AJ, do you have any, any thoughts on all of that? I know I was, like talked for a long time, but that's a, and there's a lot in there.
1: No, I think there is a lot in there, but I think you're, you're spot on there. I'm especially excited to see the trend of uh, employers expanding eligibility for benefits to start on the day of hire. I think also, you know, one thing I've done a bit of reporting on is how the kind of cycle of hiring is getting a little bit faster for a lot of employers. Um, and we're also seeing workers hold jobs for kind of shorter periods of time throughout their careers. And so I think it just is a natural progression of as that cycle of hiring new employees and and workers taking on more jobs uh, over the course of their career, I think it makes sense that we would start to see benefits kind of creep up closer to when they start uh, working at a job.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I think a lot of the things that we view about the workplace is just kind of standard. Are leftover from an old way of working or like, you know, there's no more pensions. There's no more, you know, you don't keep a job for 30 years. These kind of old, old set ways that we just kind of take for granted of this is what work is supposed to be like. It's really refreshing that kind of finally the trends are catching up that, you know, these are all arbitrary rules we made up. We can
1: make up new rules completely. So you're going to talk about hiring. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think uh, another one of the big pieces of uh, cautiously optimistic news about 2024 is that the majority of US organizations really plan to hire in 2024. Staffing Firm LaSalle Network estimates that 3 quarters of companies plan to hire in 2024, and there are a few trends that we can look for to better understand what hiring will look like in the year ahead. The first that I'm keeping an eye on is the increase in hiring contractors, consultants, freelancers, gig workers. All of these kind of contract workers seem to be really in demand at the the beginning of the year, and I expect that to continue through the year. Dan Ives, uh, who's a senior equity research analyst at Wedbush, told my coworker Jessica Brzezinski that we'll experience a, quote, golden age for the gig economy in 2024. And That's because gig work is not just up among Uber drivers and task rabbits and, you know, delivery workers, but also among white collar industry workers like in healthcare, IT and legal services. So, yeah, that's the big kind of number one hiring trend I'm looking for. I think companies are going to be hiring way more contractors, way more consultants uh, in the year ahead. The second is that I think AI is going to power so much of the hiring that we see in 2024, both on the side of applicants and on the side of hiring managers. Um, More applicants are going to be using tools like ChatGPT to write their resumes and cover letters, and more hiring managers um, are going to be using AI tools to recruit applicants, assess applications, and flag potential hires. Many of those things are trends that are already underway But um, I really don't see anything slowing that trend down in the year ahead. And if anything, I see it only picking up. And the last big trend that I'm keeping an eye on for 2024 in terms of hiring trends is the focus on skills-based hiring. Stephanie Voza wrote for us that she expects hiring managers to focus more on skills rather than things like educational pedigree or even you know, someone's resume in the year ahead. And this is another trend that's been building momentum for years. But now, due to both a, a you know an aging workforce population and a slightly tightening labor market, or at least a, a labor market that's tight in certain parts of the economy, It's going to drive more employers to look for workers based on their skills rather than if they went to a fancy school or if they, you know, worked at one of their top competitors. Another reason why we may now finally be seeing this big uptick in skills-based hiring is that there are new tools that let managers make predictions about the success of potential employees based on their skills. This kind of workforce management software is getting a lot more sophisticated in terms of predicting employee success, predicting higher success. Uh, And so I think that is going to give a lot of hiring managers the quantitative data to back up their decisions to shift towards a skill based hiring. And I
0: plan to, to talk about some skill based hiring things when I'm talking about the job seeker. And you know, we mentioned it already, too. I do think that's a really huge trend. That's a really great trend. And it is something, as I mentioned, that Lafon Davis mentioned, is a great tool for employers who are interested in that, you know, that so called pipeline problem and getting the best hire in. I think, you know, we've. For a long time, the hiring process has been broken, and it has been focused on things like you said of what school you went to, what previous companies you went to, what did you have, what job titles you held, rather than what actually matters is what skills you can do. And do, are your skills, you know, and, and being able on the employee side to craft your profile and your resume in a way that highlights those skills, and on the employer side to have whether it's software or not that screens for those skills rather than those kind of not so relevant other things.
1: Totally. And I think just to, to punctuate something that you're referencing is that skills-based hiring is one of these solutions that both can, you know, advance DE&I goals, right? It can help increase your pool of applicants. It can help you kind of assess new applicants you may not have ever considered before. But it's also one of those policies that can be really good for businesses and for their bottom lines, right? It's one of those very objective key things that hiring managers can put uh, as a priority in the year ahead that they know will both, you know, hopefully improve some type of diversity in terms of who they're considering uh, for jobs, but also can help them find uh, better potential hires.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're going to find the right people. It feels obvious, but it isn't for a lot of companies, I guess, until you start to do it. of Like you're going to find the right people if you focus on the right things and what school you went to or what previous job title you held or what company you worked for is not necessarily the right thing for you to be successful in that role. I think there's also and, and you know, this wasn't something we planned to talk about, but I, I do wonder what your thoughts are on the whole applicants using chat GPT and other tools like that to write resumes and cover letters. I have some thoughts, but I'd love to hear your thoughts.
1: My first thought on the resume side is that I think people have kind of been using form resumes already for a long time. So I, I actually don't see a ton of harm in people using some of these tools for to craft their resume, right? A lot of these are, are templated and, and putting in your information. I don't see that as a big harm. I think it gets a little bit more sticky when we get into writing cover letters. Unfortunately, writing cover letters do seem to be just a bit of a formality in a lot of hiring processes. So in that sense, I don't have any personal objection to it. However, I think if you really want to stand out as a candidate, I do not currently see ChatGPT or other large language models um, at being at the stage of advancements where... They're going to be able to produce a cover letter that's really going to help you stand out. I think if you really want to do that, you're going to have to think creatively. You're going to have to really put in your personality. You're going to have to use, you know, critical reasoning and uh, to explain and argue your best case. So resumes, I don't see a huge objection. I think it'll it's a trend that'll only continue, and I don't see a ton of harm there. Cover letters, maybe you could eke by with a, a ChatGPT written cover letter, but if I think if you really want to stand out, you're going to have to put your personal stamp on it. What do you think?
0: I mostly agree. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you're right about who writes a resume with a blank sheet of paper. Like everybody uses some sort of template to kind of get you started. But I think that's the point is like to get you started. Like sure, mm. feed your your qualifications and whatever through one of these large language models to help you. But the examples I've seen, it doesn't highlight the things exactly how you, sh- you would maybe the best way, it doesn't articulate them the best way, especially if you're trying to highlight your skills, you know, you really have to do some work on your end to make sure that it's presenting all of the information that you want it to present. But it is, since the resume is more about information, that does seem like a, a better place to use that sort of tool. I categorically do not think you should use it for a cover letter. Mm -hmm. You know, and I've said this many times, I'm very much in the pro cover letter camp. We've done LinkedIn audios about this before and lots of articles and lots of uh, podcasts. But basically, you know, a cover letter is like your time to show your personality and like, make your case as to why you're the best person for it. And it would be a big turnoff if I read a cover letter that sounded like it was written by AI, which is still pretty clear. I mean, maybe you can use it again for an outline and and start to help you get started but a candidate's really doing themselves a disservice and you're right I know a lot of people hate them and they view them as a formality and they think no one reads them <laughs> and like maybe that's the case but is that a gamble you want to take what if it's not the case you know a lot of hiring managers actually disagree and they say they do find them very valuable so I would say if you're a job candidate I would not leave it to chance and like eh, no one's going to read this it doesn't matter if it sounds like a robot wrote it and like actually you know if you really want the job like put the time in. That's my soapbox rant on cover letters as a divergent.
1: I, yeah. I, I actually, no, I, I agree with you there. And I think um, I'm actually actively working on a piece about how AI is impacting the hiring process. And, um, you know, one of the things that I'm hearing is that AI is, you know, making it easier for people to apply for jobs. But what that means on the employer side is they're getting this volume of applications that they've never seen before. So to your point, I think if you really want to stand out and, and break out from the noise, the cover letter is often your only opportunity to do so, at least on that first scan.
0: So speaking of AI, um, I did do a little diversion. I do want to talk about job seekers, and AI actually does play a big part of that. We have a listener question from Alexandra, and I think this I'm going to be getting to this, but let me just read your question to see see if I'm not. Regarding skills, I understand that many people are concerned about their jobs with the rise of AI. I personally believe that AI will not replace your job, but someone who is much better than you at using AI will. Ooh, that's a really good way to put it. Uh, What are your thoughts on this? Uh, Doesn't it create a significant incentive for organizations to train their workforce in AI? I think you're right. I think that, oh, I, I love the way you put that. AI won't replace you, but somebody who's better at using AI will. I think you're right. And I'm gonna to get to some of that and then AJ if you have something to kind of chime in there after after I get to uh what I was gonna say about uh what Anish uh Ramanet at LinkedIn told me about this. So if you will be looking for a job in 2024, there continues to be a lot about the job hunting process that is changing. In um, 2023, AI was kind of the biggest business story and it was also the biggest, one of the biggest impacts on job hunting. So let's talk about that. So late last year on The New Way We Work, I spoke to Anish Rahman, who is a VP at LinkedIn, and he talked about how AI is impacting job postings on the platform. So he said that the demand for AI engineers on LinkedIn has grown over 100% just in like the last three months of the year. But he said that while that's a huge increase um, and that AI roles themselves, so jobs that are just about AI, are growing quickly, those kind of AI-centric, totally AI-centric jobs still account for less than 1% of all the jobs on LinkedIn. But using AI in your job and knowing how to use AI in your job is increasing. So, you know, we've covered how there's kind of new roles like prompt engineer popping up, but beyond that, We are continuing, and this is what our listeners is getting at, we are continuing to see an increase in the addition of AI skills in job postings within existing roles. So Anish said that LinkedIn is seeing a 75% increase each month of 2023 in members adding terms like AI, chat GPT, and prompt engineering to their profiles. So uh, candidates are smartly adding that they kind of know how to use these tools. Job postings are adding that they expect people to know how to use these these tools and then kind of on the flip side of that, Fast Company contributor Tomas Chamaro Premazic pointed out that the soft skills that can't be replaced by AI are also continuing to have an important to be a, an important differentiator for job seekers too. In fact, 70% of the executives surveyed by LinkedIn agree that soft skills are more important than AI skills right now, which gives gives me a little hope as a human. The human skills are still important. AJ, what do you think about this as far as like, you know, you won't be replaced by AI? but somebody who knows how to use AI.
1: No, I think that's a really good point and a a good way to put it. Um, We actually, yesterday, I edited an article by Peter Carden, who is a professor at USC. And he has new research that looks at what happened when uh, companies... Uh, implemented AI and what they started looking for among their workers. Um, And what he found, at least preliminarily, is that when companies start using AI in their job descriptions, they become more likely to list soft skills and job descriptions in terms of qualifications. So I think what we're starting to see is that, you know, of course, you need to update your skills, you need to have a level of AI literacy, but I think you're increasingly going to have to be able to be better at the, the things that make humans valuable, which is those soft skills, those communication skills, those skills of empathy and being able to relate to your coworkers and build strong connections.
0: Yeah. We did a story, I remember, which as a as a human and as a manager made me feel good <laughs> last year that management was actually a, one of the most in demand, was the most in demand skill. Because even if you can replace tasks, like you can't replace relationships and being a manager is something that not a lot of people learn. It's something you kind of like it takes experience. And so it's not really something that like a task can be, can be replaced. So leaning into those uniquely human skills is good too. We asked what you think the biggest workplace story will be in 2024. And we, you know, talked about this a little bit earlier, layoffs and unemployment was up there high at 36%, even though again, that kind of goes a little bit against the trends that we're seeing in the actual job market. Focus on employee satisfaction was kind of low. It was only 13%. The clear winner in the biggest workplace story of 2024 prediction is AI's transformation of work. I think that everybody's Feeling it, it's in the media all the time. We're talking about it all the time. AI's not going away. Let's see, Andrea had said, This keeps coming up. She said, I think the major issue will be the continued fight by employees not to return to the office. After effectively working from home for an extended period, the need to return to the office seems useless. The time and cost to commute isn't worth it. I think a lot, a lot of people obviously agree with you, feel that way. Um, And then another uh, interesting comment, which I took a little bit of an uh, offense at, but I'll say it anyways. Uh, Suzanne said the story will be about the new boom boon generation of workers, baby boomers who are not interested in retiring, mashing with the me, me, me millennials. That's the part that I'm offended by as a as a cuss millennial. I'm offended by the me, me, me part, but I'll I'll let it stand. And the fusion of tradition and innovation where seasoned wisdom meets new age innovation. It's going to be a boon for business. Yeah, I think that's another big story. We covered that a lot in 2023. It's not going anywhere. The fact that we have, what, four generations in the office at once, kind of an unprecedented thing. Uh, You're right. Baby boomers are not retiring at the rates that they previous generations at that age were. Uh, So we have baby boomers. We have Gen Xers. We have me, me, me millennials and uh, Gen Z. And they all kind of come with different priorities and different ways to look at work. Some of that might be fueling some of that return to office clash. What do you think about that you're a me me me
1: millennial too aren't you? i I am I'm the other end of the I'm the other end of the cusp um yeah. um, but yeah, you know, I think that's true. I think actually, I've seen things you know this is the year millennials and Gen Z are already the majority of the workforce, so I think we're starting to see that trend there. It'll be interesting to see how Gen Z impacts the workforce as they kind of fully come in in the next few years. That'll be interesting. The thing that that stood out to me was actually um, what Andrea said about commuting to the office. Uh, I know one big story that I'm keeping an eye on is that commercial office leases. There's a pretty big volume that are set to expire in the next few years, and I do wonder if some of those office leases expire. And once companies have had a few years of collecting data to see that this kind of push to the office has or or hasn't, is my guess, produced the you know, the upswing in. Uh, Productivity that they claim to think it's going to create. Um, I think it's possible we'll, we'll see a kind of return balance to flexibility and remote work um, in the next few years.
0: That's interesting because that is a kind of an ongoing thing with vacant office spaces. Mm-hmm. Obviously, like when the pandemic hit, when remote work started, when uh, return to office started, did not necessarily coincide with when leases were up. I find it interesting that we're still here in, the, in this debate. Mm-hmm. I remember we started covering return to office and return to office debate, geez, probably in like 2021 Mm -hmm. when, you know, the vaccine was out and people were starting to talk about coming back. And here we are three years later still talking about it. I don't know. What do you you think is behind the like, why is this clash lasting so long?
1: There have been some struggles in the economy. And I think A lot of leaders are just throwing spaghetti against against the wall and um, trying to come up with you know what levers they can pull. And and one of the levers they can pull is you know they can put pressure on workers to return to the office. What they're going to see is in cases like Andrea, like they point out, where a manager's going to say, "Well, I could force her to come into the office, or I could get her to do an extra hour of work um, that she wouldn't be able to do if she was stuck on the train." So I think you know they're still kind of in this like, we, we need to try out this experiment phase. And I think um, we'll see the result of that experiment over the next few years. And and then I think we'll see a return to probably a little bit more flexibility on remote work for certain types of employees. Another thing I'm seeing is, as office leases are expiring, a lot more businesses are, are transitioning to a hub and spoke model, where they have kind of a smaller, smaller number of headquarter office locations. Um, And then kind of more either satellite offices or satellite groups of employees. Um, And, you know, they expect people to come into some of those headquarters maybe once a year, maybe once a quarter. But I I think, you know, if, if people see money in the water and the potential to save money on office leases by, you know, consolidating and having a little bit uh, reduced footprint, I tend to think that capitalistic pressures will will encourage them to do so.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you would, you would think so. And that, that hub and spoke model, Is interesting and makes sense. I mean, obviously, as somebody who works uh, fully remotely but comes to the the New York office a couple times a year, like that model makes sense to me. I do wonder too if some of the like why this debate has been lasting for so long has also played with some of the trends. Like, uh, you know, using remote work as a recruiting tool during the Great Resignation or, you know, a recruiting or retention tool during the times when employers really felt the need to to hang on to or attract employees. Or, you know, and we wrote about this last year, or using it as a... Uh, kind of sneaky tool to get people to quit. You know, we wrote about uh, some trends we saw last year of bosses demanding people come back to the office. And really what they hoped was that they knew that the person didn't want to and that that would lead them to quit. And it was a way to, you know, get them to quit without having to obviously like pay severance and all of that. It's interesting that it's such a powerful tool, though. And it's such a, such strongly held beliefs, which makes a lot of sense. It's literally where you work, um, that it has been going on for so long. And and I do wonder if 2024, I, sh- I sure hope that 2024 is the year we can put the debate to bed and, you know, just kind of settle on What the data shows, which is like the best way to get work done and the best way to keep employees happy is to, you know, allow that flexibility and what works for people. And we shouldn't, you know, I don't want to paint the brush either that like all companies want workers back and all workers want to work remotely. Obviously, that's not the case. But hopefully smart companies and employers will look at like what makes the most sense one for their employee mix for their teams, you know, and we covered this too of rather than a blanket policy, looking what makes the most sense for the people that you work with and the way that they work together and come up with those policies and <laughs> finally, finally, finally stop having this ongoing three-year debate. <laughs> Hope, a girl can dream, yeah, right? Yeah, fingers crossed. <laughs> so again, we, t- we talked about, about this already. Another kind of trend for job seekers is the shift to skills-based hiring. Um, I think we're gonna, you know, as you mentioned, we're gonna continue to see more of it on both ends. You, you kind of, you know, talked about a lot of these things kind of rather than focusing on where you've gone to school or what companies you've worked for, you kind of view it as a new way to change the way you credential both. And the, and I should say also in the job postings, so removing degree requirements, listing skills rather than titles of, of past jobs. You know, as we said, it opens up the candidate pool. Job seekers can craft their resumes and cover letters and profiles to highlight these transferable skills across like seemingly unrelated Roles. So that's really good. And speaking of skills, can, we've talked about it a lot. Uh, some of our listeners uh, alluded to it. Upskilling is going to be another big trend that will continue to grow in 2024. Career expert Amanda Augustine wrote for Fast Company about trends for job seekers. And she pointed out that the average half life of skills, the halfway point for a skill set to no longer be effective, is now less than five years. And in tech, some tech fields, it's as short as two and a half years. So That's kind of a a sobering statistic to hear, you know, if you've been working for a decade, a lot of your skills that you, you know, started with are probably not as relevant anymore. I remember, oh, how I remember taking like copy editing courses in in (laughs) journalism school, which maybe aren't so relevant anymore of all the like the ways you mark things up. But yeah, so even if you aren't planning to look for a new job this year, improving your skill set or learning those new in-demand skills, maybe some of those AI skills uh, will be key in like staying relevant in your role. Amanda suggests a lot of different ways to upskill in her article. We'll drop the link to that. You know, some of the the obvious ones like formal education, online courses, workshops, things like that. But there's also like networking groups and conferences. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be a formal way to learn new skills, but learning new skills is very important. I think we had another comment to look at here. This I don't have a lot to say on, but I'll, I'll read it and I'll see if you have if something to say on it, AJ. Um Ahmed asks, uh, could you please provide insights into the decision-making process behind declining applications for overqualified candidates and the apparent pattern of rejection for any position they apply for? That's, I mean, that's tricky. I don't know if it's a trend necessarily, but yeah, sometimes if you are overqualified, an employer might look and say that you, you know, think that you wouldn't be happy with the role or with the salary that's offered, I think you can highlight in your, that's another great place to use that cover letter and highlight why are you applying for a job, I guess, that that you may feel overqualified for. Is it a career change? And if it is, highlighting why you want to make that career change, that, you know, industry change, what kind of skills that you feel you would bring to the role, why you're interested in the role. I mean, I think it's really a place that just, you know, sending out your resume and, and hoping that they see it. And if they're just kind of looking for to check some boxes and, and it doesn't work, I mean, I think you address it head on in the, in the cover letter. Um, that would be my advice. AJ, I don't know if you have anything to add there.
1: No, I completely agree. And I think um, the only thing I can say to answer his question about why, why that may be happening is that, um, you know, uh, my, my father is an economist, and one of his favorite things to say is that, you know, uh, when you ask why something is, it's it's because they can. So <laughs> if, if an employer is looking to, you know... Uh, Pay someone as little as possible. They might be less inclined to hire someone who they think may be expecting more. Um, mm-hmm. It's not something I personally admire, but that could be why. And um, I think the the solutions you gave cater are, are a really good way to get around that.
0: All right. I guess we're going to wrap it up. So uh, thank you all for listening. I'm going to give you a couple of, uh, if you missed it up at the top, please subscribe to our newsletter, uh, Work Smarter, where we put together every week on Sunday, a collection of work-life articles kind of around a theme or a topic um, that is likely, you know, return to office, CEOs apologizing, cover letters, all of these, these sorts of things. Go to fastcompany.com slash newsletters to subscribe to that. And I guess that's it. We'll see you next month. AJ, thanks so much for joining me. It was a great conversation. Thanks so much for having me. And that's all for this episode. If you're a new listener, be sure to subscribe to The New Way We Work wherever you listen. And if you like this episode, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And we want to hear from you. Work is changing every day. What's the most pressing issue on your mind? Email us at podcast at fastcompany.com. The New Way We Work is produced by Julia Shu, Avery Miles, Blake Odom, and Joshua Christensen with editing by Nicholas Torres.